Tonight is our time as a church that we pray together at 6 o'clock, our monthly Fresh Encounter time together. So if you'd like to learn how to pray or if there's a particular need in your life, we'd love to have you come. Or if you just want to help be a part of uh, a large church to feel small, that's what tonight is all about. Our theme is Celebrate and Wait. So we're going to hear some stories from those of you who come about ways that God has shown himself faithful in 2014. And we have some invited folks who will be here who are in the middle of a waiting season and need to be prayed for. So I want to invite you to come tonight at 6. At 5, there'll be an elder prayer time in the prayer room. Uh, My wife and I will be there along with uh, Pastor Don and Cheryl. And if there's a personal matter that you'd love to pray about, we'd love to be able to intercede on behalf of you. So 5 o'clock and then 6 o'clock tonight. I hope you can come. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Isaiah 11 helps us to know how to live when the pressure is on. And I believe that there must be a number of people that today their lives are reflective of that word, pressure. And I pray that you'd meet us today from this text, help us to know how we ought to live, help us to know the reason for our hope and what this season is all about. So we ask that you'd use your word today um, in our lives to give us what we need. So come, Lord, now, please, by your spirit and illumine the inspired word of God in front of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You take care of your character and let God take care of your reputation. You take care of your character and let God take care of your reputation. In my last church, an old woman who thought I was the best preacher she'd ever heard... um, (laughs) If you weren't here last week, that's not an arrogant statement. It's related to what I talked about last week. Um, she made that statement to me as uh, I was beginning the process of candidating at the church I was in previously. It was an interesting season. The church was trying to figure out what direction it was going to go, and my candidacy happened to be the focal point of that conversation. And there were some folks who wanted the church to go one direction, some who wanted it to go another, and I was in the middle of all of that. And so for a period of about three months, church was really weird. I would um, walk down the hallways, and it was remarkable. There were certain conversations with certain people that they'd be talking very aggressively, and I'd walk by, and amazingly, those conversations would wrap up. And I knew what was going on. There were some people who um, said some things that I heard that um, were hurtful, other things that were just wrong, and some of them were just flat out not true. It was hard to come to church. It was hard to preach. It was hard, frankly, just to not react. There were lots of things that I wanted to say, and holding those things was hard. I felt out of control, unable to manage everything that was happening. Thus the statement, Mark, take care of your character, and let God take care of your reputation. And I found over those three months that I had to anchor my heart to God's ability to defend me, to protect me, and to trust Him for my deliverance. And some Sundays and some weeks that went really well, and sometimes not so much. It was a fight, a fight to believe that God could be trusted when the pressure was on. Well, eventually the the church called me to be the senior pastor, and all of us learned a great deal through that process. God used it to refine everyone in the church, including me. And the lifelong lesson for that moment, a lifelong lesson that I'm still trying to learn, was this. That God can be trusted 
when the pressure's on and it feels like you need somebody to intervene. I learned that God's promises, both in the past and in the future, can be leveraged so that I could learn to trust Him today. And for some of you, that's why you're here today. Because there's pressure in your life from various angles. And Isaiah 11, I think, I hope, I pray, is going to show you what it means to trust the Lord in the midst of pressure and how the person and work of Jesus can be the ground of resting and trusting, even if it means that your reputation has to be let go or if things are just never going to be resolved in this lifetime or if there's never really going to be true fairness in terms of what you wish, in terms of what you would like things to turn out. We're in Isaiah 11, and our text is a story of the way in which Ahaz, the king of Judah at the time, is under enormous pressure. The setting is about 700 years before the birth of Christ. The people of God and the nation of Israel are divided into two kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel to the north, the kingdom of Judah to the south. Isaiah's primary focus is to the south. Ahaz, the king, is under enormous amount of pressure. Israel and Syria have united in an alliance to defend themselves against the world superpower of Assyria. And Ahaz is crumbling underneath the pressure to join them or to become a vassal state of the country of Assyria so he could be protected. Meanwhile, he has national security problems in the south from the Edomites and the Philistines. And in the midst of all of this, Isaiah is saying to Ahaz and the people of Judah... In this pressure, you can trust the Lord with your life. And in order to verify that and to help embolden their faith, he tells them about the coming Messiah, showing them what God is going to do. Last week, we looked at verses 1 and 2. We saw that from this root, from this stump of Jesse, would come a branch or would come a shoot. And we talked last week about what happens when God either disciplines you or circumstances create Stumpville. And uh, you should have seen the images that I got this week of people saying, here's my image of Stumpville. Here's one person who works at a Christmas tree farm. And uh, this is Stumpville, right? So there used to be all kinds of trees and now they're, they're gone. And it's funny at one level, but some of you were late because you're like, yeah, that's my life right now. That's, that's, that's what I feel like. It just feels like, just got wiped out. Or maybe in 2015, you're going to experience something like that. The hope is that in the midst of a season where God brings you into Stumpville or allows you to be disciplined, that there's a plan underneath the surface. We saw that last week in verse 1. Then we saw in verse 2 that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And clearly, verse 1 and verse 2 are referring to the person and work of Jesus. And what Isaiah is promising Ahaz and the people of God is that although the pressure and the fear in their life may be enormous, that they can still anchor their lives to the promises of God. So today I want to look at this text and then make some applications. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to pull it apart and we're going to see how this text has so many entry points to other passages, other ideas in the Old and New Testament. 
And the end game is that you would leave here today emboldened to place your hope in Christ, maybe for the first time or in a non-conversion sense, to trust Him for the circumstances in your life that are either unfair, incredibly hard, unsettling, or fearful. So there's some things that we learn about the Messiah. And the first thing that we learn about the Messiah is what He loves. And really, verse 3 is a conclusion to what has been said in verse 2 about the empowerment of the Spirit. That this Messiah is going to not only possess the Spirit of God, but in possessing the Spirit of God, He is going to embody the law of God on earth. So He's the connection between God's righteous commands and the reality of where people live. Verse 3 says this, And His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Verse 3 identifies that it's not just that something is done to the Messiah, like the Spirit of God's going to empower Him, the Spirit of the Lord's going to rest upon Him. It's not just what's being done to Him that is significant here, but it is what is happening inside of Him. That the Messiah will follow the line in the heart of David. David, after all, was a man after God's own heart. And so this Messiah will have a heart that will be set on the right things. In other words, the Messiah will, at the core of who and what he is, be committed to loving and pursuing that which is right. You never have to doubt the Messiah's motivation. You never have to wonder, what's really inside of you? What's really driving you? What's really your agenda? The Messiah's agenda is the fear of the Lord. This idea of fear of the Lord is a very important concept in the Old Testament. In fact, can you think with me for a moment in terms of where else this idea of fear of the Lord shows up? Can you think of any texts? Think, for instance, of Proverbs chapter 1 where it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Or Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 5 that links the fear of the Lord with the knowledge of God. They're, they're really the same idea, the same concept. Or Psalm 19 verse 9, interestingly, uh, when talking about the Bible and with the law of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, he then says the fear of the Lord, as though the fear of the Lord is equivalent to the law of the Lord and the commands of the Lord. In fact, there's a great text that shows us this. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. Helps us understand what the fear of the Lord is. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12. Moses, in the context of giving the people the Ten Commandments, challenges them to be genuine in their relationship with their God. In verse 12 he says, And now Israel... What does the Lord require of you, and here's what he requires of them, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So when he strings all those phrases together, like walk in his ways, love him with all your heart, and fear the Lord, those aren't like four different things. They're all the same thing. All of that to say that when the Bible in the Old Testament uses the phrase, fear the Lord... And it's used all over the place. Essentially what it means is it's a summary of what it means to be a follower of the one true God. So you can think of it in the New Testament we would call somebody a Christian. Or someone who's a follower of Jesus. Well, in the Old Testament the term or the phrase that would be used would be fear 
of the Lord or a God-fearer. So to fear the Lord is essentially to be a convert. It is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Yahweh, the follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now go back to Isaiah chapter 11, for it's not just that he says he has the fear of the Lord, but it's even more, it says that he delights in the fear of the Lord. This is a strong word. It's the same word that is used in Genesis 8, 21 to describe God's emotions as it relates to the savoring of the burnt offering from Noah, that it was pleasing to him, that in God's nostrils, if you will, in, in a sort of an anthropomorphic, in a anthropomorphic sort of way, there's that word, it means that God is picturing himself in um, physiological terms while God doesn't have a nose, but it means that when he enjoys the savory smell of that offering, that God's enjoyment in that is the same word as the word delight. It's sort of like what happens when you're in the springtime on your back porch and you're eating salad and your neighbor's cooking steak and you're smelling the wafting smoke coming over into, and you're like, mmm, someone's cooking something, right? That, that, that's the idea. And, and, and it's the passion for this that, that, that motivates the Messiah to follow the fear of the Lord. So it's not just that he has the fear of the Lord, but it's, that it, it, it's his delight that there's a, a, a yearning, a, a, an inkling, a, a passion, if you will. In, in the same way that, you know, wives, and I'm sure some of you husbands, but mostly wives, you spend so much time getting ready for the holidays. I was just commenting on my wife just the other day how much time she spends in the kitchen for comparatively how little time we spend enjoying the food and she was appreciative that i acknowledged the distinction between these two categories which then led me to say no cooking this entire week as we get ready for uh, for for family and everything else so let's see how much we can not cook in the kitchen because what happens is the anticipation of that that morsel going in our mouths and mm that that is a momentary sort of experience and yet how much time is spent in getting ready for that moment and the idea is that the messiah anticipates and longs for and desires the fear of the lord so the inkling within his heart is this leaning towards I, I love the lord i want the lord i pursue the lord that's the idea his delight will be in the fear of the lord such when he thinks about the commands of god when he thinks of the law of god when he thinks of the reign of god something within his heart goes mm. can, can you make that sound a minute mm. you know there was a day back in the day when we were in the other sanctuary that, that sound used to happen a lot here i used to call it the college park mm. some of you remember it does any of you remember that or not? Okay, all right, good. So just just so you know, you could still make that sound in here. Like what would happen if those of you are like, what are you talking about? Well, well a good point would be made, and maybe even a bad one that was still biblical. Um, the, 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 the congregation would respond with just like, mm, like that's good. Mm, that makes that makes sense. And so that's what the, the Messiah is. Inside of him, there is this leaning or this longing for the goodness and the graciousness of who and what God is because he cherishes the fear of the Lord. Yeah, there you go. You got it. (laughs) The point is this. You couldn't trust Ahaz. Who knew what what, what he was going after? 
What, what king would, would sit on the throne and you'd, you'd always wonder, what's your real agenda here? Is this about you? Is this about God's glory? And the Messiah will be one, listen, whose heart you could completely trust because his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. That's the point. Here's the second thing. Not only what the Messiah loves, but also what he does. Verse 3 not only does it say his delight will be in the fear of the Lord, it also says he will, shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So there's a shift that happens in verse 3 in the middle part. It identifies not just what he loves, but now it talks about what he will actually do. What kind of rule, what kind of effect will this Messiah have? Well, the first thing we see is what he will not do. He will not judge, it says, by what his eyes see or decide dispute by what his ears hear. Why would he say that? Well, there's some sort of of court metaphor that's being used. And he says ears and eyes. Why does he use that sort of language. Well, because when it comes to the administration of justice on the earth, seeing and hearing are critical to the system of justice. So touch, taste, and smell, while they're part of the senses, they're not part of the system of justice. But seeing and hearing are. A judge has to use his ears to hear what's said. He has to use his eyes to evaluate, is this person really telling the truth? And there is no judge who does not use his eyes or his ears, nor any judge who does not hear or see perfectly. A judge may not see everything that he or she needs to see or hear, or his always subject to the manipulation of others. So even the best system of justice has a frail foundation to it. And whether that's an official system of justice in the courts or whether that's a system of justice just in an organization that maybe you work in or that you've been a part of, some of you know what it's like to have faced injustice. Maybe you face that injustice at work where people have seen things or heard things and it's just not true or right. Or maybe a a situation in an educational organization or in the courts or maybe even in your family. Maybe there's a family member that you're going to hang around with this holiday season and what they believe to be true about you is just fundamentally not right, but there's nothing you can do about it. And what Isaiah 11 is telling us is that the Messiah is not like the people who have caused you great pain. He doesn't judge by what his eyes see. He doesn't just settle disputes by what his ears hear. Verse 4, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. Notice that instead of eyes and ears, his resource by which he judges is righteousness and equity with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth the word righteousness is a signature word which means that which is true that which is correct 
that which is right. And the word equity means that which is fair, that which is upright, and that which is just. And so this is how the Messiah judges. So righteousness and equity are more than just what he brings. He doesn't just bring these into his rule and reign. Righteousness and equity are the means by which the Messiah judges and decides. So what eyes and ears are to earthly judges, righteousness and equity is to the Messiah. Then he says, He will bring righteousness, or with righteousness rather, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So we have the poor and we have the meek. Now it's not that the poor are going to be judged in the sense that they've committed crimes. Instead what it means is that the poor and the meek are those who are oppressed. And the idea of oppression is a very significant theme in the book of Isaiah. In fact, as it relates to the sins of the nation of Judah, part of what they are brought to account before God for is their failure to relieve oppression. Many of you know the text in Isaiah that says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as what? Snow. Do you know the sins that Isaiah is talking about? i got to show you this. Go to Isaiah chapter 1. And look at verse 16. Isaiah 1 and verse 16. He says, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. And this is the introduction to the book of Isaiah. This, this is what the book of Isaiah is about. This is why they are brought under discipline. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. And here it comes. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Now verse 18. Come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. What are the sins? The sins are the sins of oppression. The sins that Judah was not concerned about. They were concerned about the fatherless. They weren't concerned about the widow. They were living self-centered, oppressive-oriented lives. And the message is that the, the, the Messiah is going to come and he is going to relieve the oppression that has plagued the land and will relieve Judah from the oppression that's coming from Assyria. In other words, God is going to give them discipline because they are failing to embrace righteousness in the very basic level of their society and their culture. They were not living in a manner fitting of God's people. Now go back to Isaiah 11. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. The Messiah is the hope of those who are oppressed. But then notice what else he will do. Verse 4. B. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The image here is of a judgment that is supremely powerful. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This is unbelievable power. After all, it is one thing to do some amazing feat. For instance, if I were to stand up here and take a a barbell with 600 pounds on it, and were to lift it over my head, you'd be like, wow, that's amazing. 
But if I were to stand back from that barbell and go watch this, and I were to command it to be raised, and it raised up, you'd run. (laughs) Get out of here. Why? Because that's power of a different kind. Imagine a warrior who was not just strong with a sword, but imagine a warrior who by, who by virtue of what he says can create death. Imagine him walking through the battlefield and just going, die, 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 die. And people are falling left and right. That's the image. I mean, that's, that's incredible power. And that's the image that is communicated here in terms of the Messiah. Think of the terror of a ruler who by his words can bring death. This idea of the power of action by speaking is central to a vision of God's authority. After all, this shows up other places in the Bible, doesn't it? Think Genesis 1. How was the world created? Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light. And the universe suddenly has light in it. Because of God's speech. I mean, that's power. Or think of Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And by virtue of the commands of his words, Lazarus is raised from the dead. It's not that the other miracles that he did were less significant. But it's interesting that to raise the dead, Jesus doesn't lay hands on him. He doesn't touch him. Just virtue by, just by virtue of the words that he says, Lazarus suddenly walks out of the tomb. Can you imagine that moment? When we come to Romans 8, you need to know that one of the powerful statements that are made about those who are in Christ is that there is no condemnation. And one of the things you're going to have to get your head around in Romans 8 is the fact that for God to declare something over you is a very significant thing because this is the God who spoke in the universe teamed with life. The God who calls dead people from the grave is the same God who declares you to be righteous even though you are not righteous apart from him. And then there's another text, Revelation 19. Take your Bible. I want you to see this as well. So we went Genesis, now all the way to Revelation book of Isaiah just has some unbelievable treasures in it that connect messages from all over the Old and New Testament. Verse 11 of Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. That sounds similar to Isaiah 11, doesn't it? And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. You see it? Here it is. From his mouth, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a good place to go. Mm. Yeah, there you go. It's a beautiful text, isn't it? It's a powerful reality. 
We have this image, when we put all of this together, of a Messiah who will love the right things, a Messiah who will judge by righteousness, and a Messiah who by His very word has power to defeat His enemies. In other words, what Isaiah is telling us and what we need to hear is that this is one who not only can bring justice, but He has the power to guarantee that it will happen and it will never fail. Isaiah gives us an image here of a a deliverer. If you're a war movie buff, if you're a kind of old school war movie, you know that that when the cavalry comes, there's rejoicing because finally a a new power or an extensive new power has come onto the battle scene. Or if you're a more contemporary war movie buff, when the air force flies in, suddenly now men on the ground cheer because we have a new power that has come. And the idea is that the Messiah is going to come to deliver and he is filled with power. The hope is this, we'll cover this more at the end, that no matter what the pressure or what the injustice, Isaiah 11 tells us that the Messiah will one day make it all right and he has the power to keep it right. Here's the third thing. Not only what the Messiah loves, not only what he does, the third thing here is who the Messiah is. It's interesting, verse 5 sort of wraps up this little section before it jumps into descriptions of what the environment is um, in which the Messiah rules. That's verses 6 through 10, and the pastoral residence will help us understand that next week. But verse 5, he comes back to a summary statement about who the Messiah is. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So what he's... He's using this belt analogy, because in the ancient Near East, a belt was a very critical piece of your wardrobe. It, it held everything together. So if you lost your belt, that wasn't good. I mean, it was, it was an essential part of, of um, what it meant to be clothed. And so when he says that righteousness shall be his belt and faithfulness the belt, essentially what he's saying is that his character and who and what he is will be marked by righteousness. That righteousness and faithfulness for the Messiah will be so characteristic of him that it will be reflected in his clothing, if you will. That central to his character is this matter of righteousness. Listen to Isaiah 59 says, he puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in a zeal as a cloak. So when Isaiah uses clothing metaphor, it's meant to communicate that this is who he is. This is what he possesses. He, he could have just said, the Messiah will be righteous. But instead he says his belt is righteousness. His belt is faithfulness. Now, you know where this shows up, don't you, in the New Testament? For those of you who are familiar with the book of Ephesians, Paul takes this metaphor and he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Stand fast, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth 
and having taken on the breastplate of righteousness. So in the New Testament, what happens is Paul picks up on this righteous clothing sort of metaphor, and he says that when you become a follower of Jesus, you take on his clothing. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 that we are to put on the Lord Jesus. Like it's, a, like it's clothing, we're to put it on, we're to be the kind of people who are so reflective of who and what Jesus is that it seems as though we're wearing garments that belong to him. So why does Isaiah 11 make this kind of statement about who the Messiah is after talking about judgment? I think it's because every aspect of hope in the future is conditioned upon what the Messiah is really about. In other words, if the Messiah isn't righteous and he has the power to speak and kill and speak and give life, if that kind of power isn't conditioned in righteousness, that's a nightmare. But if the Messiah is full of righteousness and full of faithfulness, if the promise is that he judges not in the way that we judge, then this Messiah is a hopeful deliverer. And Isaiah's message to Ahaz and the people of Judah is, look, you could put your trust in God's ability to protect you. The Messiah will not fail you. He will right every wrong. He will destroy and defeat everything that is evil. And at the core of who and what he is, the Messiah is righteous. And therefore, God can be trusted in the future, but he also can be trusted now. That's what Isaiah 11 is about. Let me now help you understand how I think this text in four ways is helpful. At least it was helpful to me. What do we make of this text? What is is this text saying and how should we process it? Here's the first thing. And I want to say this gently but clearly. And that is today, if you're an unbeliever, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to hear... What's happening in Isaiah 11? And be warned. There's something not complete about the image that you receive of Jesus during the Christmas season. You have a quaint birth of a humble baby. And while all of that is true... You need to know that if you're not a follower of Jesus, that that's the beginning of a bigger story. And that bigger story is that this baby Jesus grows into a man. He heals the sick, gives evidence that he really is the Son of God. He perfectly obeys the law. He raises the dead. He knows the hearts of people. He teaches with an authority that they've never heard before. And even when he is crucified, he is raised from the dead and promised that he would come back as the deliverer of his people to judge the world, such that Peter, when speaking to a number of people who had participated in the crucifixion of Jesus, said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God made him both Lord and Christ. And their response was to repent. Why? Because they just realized that they just crucified the Son of God, and he's alive and he's coming back. That's not a happy image. 
that should make you feel cavalier. Instead, it is one that should cause us to repent and turn. The risk, if you never deal with the Bible's image of your sin and who Jesus is, is that one day when this king returns or when you die and when you meet him, he knows everything about you and you will be on the judgment end of who he is, not on the merciful end. And therefore, if you're an unbeliever, my, my plead with you would be that you'd come to faith in Christ, you'd put your trust in him, and no longer be on the side of his judgment, but instead on the side of his grace. It's just ironic to me of the millions of people during this holiday season who have no relationship with Jesus, and yet they will sing the Christmas song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And as I was looking at this text, I just thought, you have no idea what you're singing. If you don't know Christ, you don't want Him to come. If you're out of fellowship with Him, you don't... You don't sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, because this coming Emmanuel, God with us, is one who you do not want to be on the wrong side of in terms of your sin. Now, I'm not saying don't ever sing that song again, like, oh, great, you just canceled Christmas, Mark. You know? <laughs> but what I am saying is realize the one that you're singing about, even in this Christmas hymn, is not just a docile little baby in a manger. This is the coming king who will come to judge the world with equity and justice. There will be no testimonies in his court because he knows it all already. Can you imagine that? Here's the second thing. For those of you that are followers of Jesus, this text is a reminder and a call for us to rejoice in the fact that everything rests on Jesus. Everything does. Advent is a time to celebrate the first coming of Jesus in the midst of all of those wonderful expressions of celebration. Do not forget, do not miss this one very important reality. This Christ child that we focus on during the Advent season is everything. Without him, there is no atonement, no forgiveness, no reconciliation. There's no promise of eternal life. There is no hope. Everything we believe is pinned entirely upon him. He is the essence of our hope. He's the means by which we are converted. And because of who and what he is, that makes him credible to be able to hang on the cross, pay the atonement for sins. And so during this holiday season, I don't want you just to celebrate Christmas in general. I want you to take some time over the holiday to say personally to Christ, Without you, I've got nothing. You're my hope. You're everything. That you somehow connect the personal reality of who Jesus is. That Christianity is not just a religion. It is a relationship with a person. His name is Jesus. He's alive. He's physical. He's real. And he's coming back. And without him, there would be no hope. Third, this passage begs some comment about injustice. This text tells me that injustice can be born when you know the future. 
Isaiah 11 is a great reminder that if we have hope for a future Messiah, and if that Messiah will execute perfect justice, that if you're a follower of Jesus, you can bear up under unfair treatment. You don't have to say everything that comes to mind. You can let your strange uncle just... You don't have to say everything. Maybe you say something. You don't have to say everything. You can deal with unfair treatment or unfair perceptions. You can deal with oppression and even, although I don't know how many of us really face this, some level of persecution. Knowing that Jesus is going to make everything right one day with perfect clarity and eternal justice means that you can defer taking your pound of flesh. That you can do what Jesus did and bless people who are unkind and pray for those who are intentionally cruel. And you can live in this life from the need to settle the score because you know at the end of the day the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is going to settle the score. And you can live in that and be free in that. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 21 to 23. Anybody who works with people, anyone who serves in the church, anyone who works with sinners needs to know this verse. For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Here it comes. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he didn't threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's how you deal with unfair treatment. Someone's reviling you, you don't revile back. They say awful things, you don't up the ante. Someone starts to create suffering in your life, you don't threaten. Why? Because you can entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Because you know there is coming a king of kings and lord of lords who's going to settle all the score in in life, who knows exactly who's to blame. And he knows to what extent you are or aren't, and he knows to what extent other people are or aren't, and he'll settle it all. And so therefore, you can leave room for God's judgment. And I think that brings freedom. Maybe that relates to your past. Maybe that relates to some people who you're going to spend some time with over the holidays. Or maybe, maybe this is a text that you're hearing now because unknown to you, six to eight weeks from now, you're going to have to put this into practice. And you say you wish you could know the future, but God has graciously hidden it from you so you can enjoy your Christmas. And then get hammered eight weeks from now. (laughs) Merry Christmas. I could entrust myself to the one who judges justly. Finally, the text tells us to trust him when we are afraid. There's a reason, church, why the Bible tells us how it all ends. 
There's a reason why Ahaz receives this word from Isaiah about a coming deliverer. There's a reason why the Bible tells us what our Messiah is not only going to be like, but also what he is going to do even in the future. And the encouragement in this text is essentially to take the long view. It's to take the long view looking backwards, to see what God has done in your life historically, to see what He's done in the Bible, but also to take the long view looking forward, to not get stuck in the micro view of your life and how hard or how difficult, because if you get stuck in the little micro, you will say things that you shouldn't say, you will worry about things that you shouldn't worry about, you'll try to grab a hold of things that you can't really grab a hold of, but instead, you should take the long view that there's coming a day when Jesus will reign, He'll make everything right, and this long view is meant to give you strength and encouragement to not fall into to fear and not to dump into despair but instead to say i know that i can trust you because you've got my past and my future so surely you have my present martin luther said this let goods and kindred go this mortal life also the body they may kill god's truth abideth still his kingdom is forever some of you that that needs to be the mantra of your mindset right now his kingdom is forever that's how you deal with things that are are unfair how you deal with people that are challenging to, to to deal with it's how you deal with injustices from the past it's you believe and anchor your heart and life to a king whose kingdom is forever that god i don't know how this is all going to work out i don't know how my life's going to turn out my job's going to turn out this relationship's going to turn out i don't know about my future but what i do know is this is your kingdom is forever and therefore i can trust you because you are my messiah and you are the king of kings and lord of lords let's pray father we ask you to apply your word now to where we individually need it All of us, and you know this, have stories or issues or challenges that require the application of the idea of to keep entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. And thank you for this reminder from Isaiah 11 that when the pressures of life come upon us, when we're tempted to despair, that we can anchor our lives back to the promises in the Bible. Promises that have been fulfilled and promises yet to be fulfilled. And we can pull those in into where we live today. Jesus, thank you that you invite us to come boldly to the throne to receive mercy and grace. And I pray for brothers and sisters today who need to come before this holiday season and just at the end of the year, perhaps just lay some things at your feet or again say to you, Lord, I'm, I'm not picking this one up. I've laid it at your feet. I'm choosing today to trust you and not worry. I'm choosing to not get even. I'm choosing to entrust myself to you. So help us, Lord. 
And for those who do not know you as Savior, that today might be a day where they come to realize their need to turn from their sin and turn to you in faith, believing in Jesus as their Savior. Thank you for the hope that your kingdom is forever. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. If I don't see you before the holidays, Merry Christmas. God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thank you.